All right, a couple of announcements. Mine was, should have started 10 minutes ago. It looks like a booklet up here. All right, this semester, the spring semester, registration for Chafer Seminary begins January 3rd. That is next Monday. So you have plenty of time to procrastinate and wait until next Tuesday to actually look at what the course offerings are. I'm being facetious. Because you have an option that between January 3rd and the 9th, that first week that your registration fee is waived, if you are a member of West Houston Bible Church, then your tuition for the courses is free. And uh, if you're here physically, there are flyers out on the uh, tables in the front and the back with the course offerings. Also, our annual congregation meeting is Sunday, February 6th, immediately following the morning worship service, and we always encourage everyone to attend, whether you're a member or not, just because we discuss what is going on with church business. And if you'd like to become a church member, you can uh, ask Cheryl Jeffries, and Cheryl will give you an application for membership. And then this. I've had the opportunity, the la- really more than just the last year, but the last two or three years, it goes back further than that, but we have, uh, I, I've been invited, uh, as several other pastors in the Houston area are, to give a, fill in a 15-minute devotional time, uh, prayer time on KHCB that is on 10, 10 o'clock in the morning. I think it's every day of the week, Right? Every day of the week. So my slot this month is on Mondays, and I will be giving the, these uh, devotionals. The ones I've done in the past, or 13 of the ones I've done in the past, are have been given to us, and we're going to be putting those up on the Dean Bible Ministries website, and so you can listen to those. We sent out an announcement to this effect today, so you can listen live to KHCB when you're if you're in the listening area here, they have a number of sister stations, satellite networks around the state, and you, that you can go to their website, khcb.org, and you can um, uh, get those, and then you can also listen to it live on the website if you live in some place where it, there's a doctrinal wasteland and you can't get to it, you can listen to it. Even if you're in Africa or China or anywhere in the world, at 10 o'clock Central Time, you can go to KHCB and listen. So that's a, that's a wonder that we have today. All right, I think that is all of our announcements, right? Anything else? Okay. We will have Bible class Thursday night. We will not have a New Year's Eve service, so the schedule from now until February will be normal. In February, there are two guest speakers. I will be gone, and I will be out a little longer this year because I have a little trip I would like to make um, partially on church or DBM business, but um, uh, on the way back from Kiev. And so I'll be gone a little longer, so I'll miss eight classes. Four of them will be covered by Wayne House. Four of them will be covered by... Uh, Doug Petrovich. So I'm, just, and and they're competing. They were arguing with each other. Who who gets to get the more classes to teach? And just a few years ago, I didn't have anybody who could come in and fill. And now I've got two uh, very respected 
biblical scholars to come in and uh, and teach, and they enjoy coming here. So that's that's a great op- opportunity. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so that if necessary, you can confess any sins that you need to to God the Father in silent prayer so that we can be spiritually prepared for our study of God's word tonight. To remind you of scripture, the psalmist said, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. So we'll bow our heads together, and after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we come together this evening to recognize that all that we are, all that we have comes from you, and that we are on this earth for a purpose, and that purpose is to uh, glorify you in every, with every thought, every act, every deed, and to serve you with our lives. And that doesn't mean in some sort of professional Christian service, but in whatever field we may be in, whether it is working in uh, internet technology or working as an auto mechanic are working in some sort of a support field in finance or teaching or ed- education or anything like that. We are to do all these things as your servants. We work for some local employer, but ultimately, as Paul tells us, we work for you, and we serve you in whatever capacity that may be. And so to learn how we are to think and live and act and serve, we have to study your word that we might be sanctified by your word. And we pray that as we study tonight, that you will challenge us with the things we study, that we may fulfill the scripture to not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. We will open our Bibles to Genesis 1 eventually, so it might be difficult for you to find it. So if necessary, you can start looking now. Maybe in five or ten minutes you'll be ready. Tonight what we're going to look at, as we've been looking the last couple of weeks, setting the stage for a study of uh, what the Bible teaches about manhood and womanhood. We're not going to go into a, a lot of detail. This is going to be a long series, but we have to set the stage and set the framework. And so I started last time looking at the problems that we have today because more than any time in the history of Western civilization since probably the early Middle Ages, 
we are faced with a surrounding culture that is at war with the biblical teaching on the distinctions between men and women. In fact, they're at war with anything that the Bible teaches. And so we are going to look tonight at the topic of equal but different. And this comes out of our study of Deborah and Barak in Judges 4 and 5 because every time you get in a discussion about uh, the role of men and the role of women, especially going to First uh, Timothy chapter 2 or some of the other uh, passages in the New Testament, the first thing that somebody who is uh, opposed to the biblical view trots out is Deborah. Whatever you read, wherever you look, she's trotted out. See, Deborah shows that women can do everything. They're interchangeable with men. And so that's what we're addressing in this particular uh, sub-series. And last time, I, the last couple of times really, I talked about worldview, that there's really only two worldviews. There's the view of the Bible or the view of the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel is the view of humanity in many, many, many different forms, but it always comes back to that one form, which is, uh, in other words, it is human viewpoint. I've used that term. I've used the term of, of the devil's viewpoint because that's what it is. It is Satan's viewpoint. It is the viewpoint of the demonic. James, in James chapter 4, tells us that the wisdom of the world is earthly it is soulish, and it is demonic. That defines all the different philosophies, all the different religions, all of the different ideas that human beings generate out of the um, vacuum of their soul to try to make sense out of life apart from the Bible. And we went through Romans 1 last time, and that this often is the orientation of the human heart to resist God, deny God, suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So the choice is simple. It's the Bible or the Tower of Babel. It's Jerusalem or Babylon. That's how it's often pictured in Scripture. You have Jerusalem, the city of God, Babylon, that is the city of man. You have the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of man. Those ideas get a little distorted today, so I try not to use that phrase uh, very much. And ultimately, it's a biblical worldview or Satan's worldview. Those are the only options. It is worshiping the creature or the creation rather than the creator, and that's the essence of paganism. And what we'll see, because this lays the foundation for some of the things we'll see coming up, is that in, in Judges, we see that under paganism, manhood and womanhood are are tragically corrupted and distorted. And you see that paganism always uh, destroys true biblical womanhood and manhood. They both get corrupted because of sin. And that only stands to reason within a, within a biblical, biblical worldview. And you, we see an example... Right now in, in our country, I see an article on this almost every day, and this is the case of that man who is, identifies as a woman and he's become a champion swimmer. He was just mediocre as a male swimmer, but now that he identifies as a woman and gets to swim in competition against women, he sets all the records and wins everything. And what is absolutely appalling and ironic is that the feminists are not up in arms. They say nothing about this. 
and this is just going to destroy women's sports. And when you have, look back on the history, and you have Title IX and all of the work that was done um, by them in the 70s in order to have uh, equal time and equal play for women's sports to take this, and, and you have to ask, why is this? Where's this coming from? How How is this consistent? And so in the last couple of lessons, as I've pointed out, the the present worldview as as a monistic pantheism, a, a, a paganism, that this fits. It really does, because it's not based on that which is rational. It's based on that which is irrational. But that's it. And so we see as man rejects God, what goes into the vacuum of, the, of, of their soul is this desire to recreate everything after their, their own thinking. And for all believers who struggle with some of these issues, because all of us have grown up in an environment that in terms of women and men, there's been so much that's been said, so much that's been done. We have been influenced to one degree or another by what we've seen on film, what we have seen in television shows and plays, what we've read. The values of the world just seep into our corrupt little souls and we have struggles with this. And we have to go back and start with the Scripture. And that's what Paul gets to in Romans 12, too. Do not be conformed. And that word in the Greek means pressed into a mold. Don't let the thinking of the world shape you. Don't let it form you and mold you into its value system. Don't be conformed by the spirit of the age, literally, King James, New King James translated it as, as the world, but it's not the word cosmos, it's the word ion, which is the idea of this German word zeitgeist, the spirit of the age. But we are to be transformed. That's why you're here in Bible class, that's why you're listening online, is to learn how to think biblically. And we have to be transformed. That means we have to flush out the garbage, which is all of the human viewpoint that we picked up from our culture, from our parents, from our peers, from our professors, and we have to replace it with the Word of God. And that's a full-time job because it was a full-time job getting all that garbage into our soul, and so it takes more than three or four hours a week to flush it all out. So we have to really set that as, a, a, as an intentional objective in our life. It's done by the renewing of our mind. It's thought. It's not emotion. It's not feeling. I wish I could take the time to go back through what I realized teaching through church history in this last year. In, the, in American history, what happens coming out of the national period when or the uh, war for independence period when the government is formed, is there's this shift in what is the normative Christianity of the day, uh, and there is a reduction of their view of God and an elevation of their view of man, and faith is redefined in terms of an experience with God. Now, that's not everybody, but that's what's happening, especially within the congregational churches and many of the Presbyterian churches, and it, those seeds are planted, it begins to change, and by the time you get to the midpoint of the 19th century, it, it's really taking a hold on the American Christian mentality. And that is what gives birth then, or opens them up, to what is 
called um, Protestant liberalism, European Protestant liberalism. And I'll mention that again before we get we get done tonight. So we have to renew our minds, not our emotions. That from the beginning of the 19th century, faith is understood in terms of an emotion, some kind of encounter with God. And so Christianity becomes more and more emotional. But we renew our mind, not our emotions. Why? That we may demonstrate as in a court of law, providing evidence. That's the word there in the Greek. Uh, that God's word is accept, God's will is accept, is good and acceptable and perfect. So we understand worldview. It's the foundation of all thought. We have our understanding of ultimate reality. Is it God or is it matter? That's all you've got. Ultimately, it's reducible to that. You have a personal infinite God on the one hand, or you just have matter and energy on the other hand. That's, that's all you've got. Uh, from that, you're going to build your theory of knowledge. How do we know anything? How do we know truth? Can we know truth? What's right? What's wrong? What's just from unjust? People talk about social justice. Well, that's great. Where do you get your ideas for right and wrong and justice? Just start there, asking the questions. Uh, then from that, we get our ethics and uh, how we live our lives, our value systems, and ultimately that gets all worked out in terms of individual personal decisions as well as national and political decisions. The big problem is what happens from almost the get-go after uh, Noah and his family get off the ark is they start to worship the creature rather than the creator. Romans one twenty five. They exchange the truth of God for the lie. So there is a worship exchange, there's a thought exchange, and there is a sex exchange because the root of paganism is exchanging the truth of God for the lie, and they are worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator, and that should be translated the creation. It's the same word that's translated creation about four verses earlier. It's not just creature. That's an animate object, creature. But this is, they worship stone, wood, metal. They worship the earth. They worship the stars. That's inanimate. So it's creation. They worship and serve the creation rather than, than the creator. And the ultimately what you have in all pagan systems is what is called the great chain of being. And I talked about that last time because it sees that of everything that there is, they all shares in the concept of being. They share in the same essence and the same uh, being. And I gave you a couple of quotes that I'll I'll review again and again. The chain of being is a hierarchy of static, unchanging forms. This is the way it was in the ancient world with God, and that should be a lowercase g-o-d, he is known as being or the unmoved mover, uh, the good, the absolute. He's at the top, and then there's angels, humans, animal, plants, down to inanimate objects. That's what's really pictured here in this part of the chart. God is at the top, and you go all the way down to non-being, but it's all on the same chain, which, which what that means is that everything shares in the same oneness of being. We're little gods because we're all in that chain of sharing that same essence essence with God. 
Uh, Rush Duny said it's a hierarchy of gods as well as a hierarchy of men. They all consist of one undivided, continuous being. So here's another way I diagrammed it with a uh, pyramid. And you have God at the top and uh, just rocks, geophysical environment, climate at the bottom, and all of that participates. It's all one. The barriers are limited. So in monism, I pointed out, all reality shares the same essence or essential nature or being to one degree or another. So when I think, say, that a rock is essentially the same as a deer, that's a technical phrase. They, what I'm saying is they share the same essence. They're all part of that chain of being or essence. So everything shares in that. So if God's at the top, we share his, his essence, his beingness. And as such, pagan monism denies that real barriers exist. But biblical Christianity believes that God created the barriers, the kinds in Genesis 1, the distinctions. Only biblical Christianity provides the solution for unity and diversity. I know that most people don't have much of a philosophical background, and if you went to school somewhere and you studied philosophy, you probably started with Immanuel Kant, and they ignored the first, you know, they ignored everything back to Plato. But that's, that does the student a disservice and does history a disservice. People didn't start talking about philosophical questions when Kant came forth. And and one of the time-honored issues was, is everything one or is everything many? One or two? That's how Peter Jones puts it. One-ism or two-ism? Is it one or many? Is it being or becoming? In the ancient world, it wasn't clarified real well. You had Parmenides, Heraclitus and Parmenides, and this is they began to wrestle with this. But their many isn't the many of Scripture, okay? What we have in Scripture is something distinct. On the left side of the chart, we have the triune God. In and of himself, he is many. He is three, three distinct persons, but yet he is one in essence. What that means is that in God you have a solution to the problem of unity and diversity, the one and the many, because in him he represents both unity and diversity. But he creates distinct from himself, which is why I have a black line separating them, a finite universe. So that man, animals, vegetation, matter, and energy, they don't share in the same essence. They are distinct creatures from God. The right side, you see paganism. The universe is infinite and impersonal. I always get a chuckle every now and then. I'll make a comment. I'll overhear somebody. They'll say, well, the universe wants me to do this. I said, does the universe have will? Is it personal? Then I get dirty looks just trying to tweak them into thinking about what they're saying. Rocks don't, ha- don't have will. Moons and planets and stars don't have will. They can't will anything. 
So they had this idea of the universe as this closed system. God, man, and nature are all in there in that same chain of being, that same essence. This is depicted through an Eastern religious symbol, the yin-yang symbol. The circle means all is one. The fact that you have white and black is only apparent because inside the white is a black dot and inside the black is a white dot. All is one. That the distinctions are simply uh, uh, manifestations of that are artificial. Okay? Last time I gave you this quote from Peter Acciagrosso in his book, The Joy of Sex. I just like saying that. Great title for that book. And uh, he says, under and through each of the great traditions, that's the great religious traditions, the great philosophical traditions, runs a stream, a single stream, that feeds each of these traditions from a single source, and it's called, and there's so many people, so many groups that, that use this term, the perennial perennial philosophy. I quoted Aldous Huxley last time, and uh, you could also quote Carl Jung. Many, many others all talk about the perennial philosophy, and that this is a system that seeks to break down duality, which is two-ness, God, I mean, creator versus creation, and return us to the unitive condition of monism. And see, we're one. There's no real distinction. That's just that's manifested in its most consistent form in Hinduism. That's why uh, C.S. Lewis made this statement that you don't really, when you get past all the little superficial distinctions, you only have two options, Christianity on one side and Hinduism on the other side. Everything else is just a, a distortion of one or one or the other. So this is what I've been looking at, is looking at this whole issue of, of monism and how that is where the, the modern man gets his views of maleness and femaleness. He's worshiping the creation, so he's getting it out of his worldview. But we have to contrast that with what is said in Genesis 1. Now, one of the first things that we should note is Genesis 1 is talking about an ex nihilo creation. That Latin phrase means out of nothing. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the word for create in and of itself doesn't mean ex nihilo, but other, other pl- places make that clear. But the Hebrew verb there, bara, is only used with God as its subject. It's never used with a human being as its subject. And he creates the universe. Before he created the universe, there was nothing. There wasn't even space. There wasn't empty space. There was nothing. Empty space would mean there's at least a box, and there wasn't a box. There's just God and his throne room, and the angels that he had created, Job 38, 4 through 7, said that the angels rejoiced when God laid the foundation of the earth. And that's what I believe Genesis 1, 1 is talking about. But what we're looking at here is that in this perennial philosophy that worships the creation, animate, inanimate, the earth, nature, nature gods, 
And with that worship of creation, they will destroy. And pagan, the history of pagan cultures shows that. Uh, that with that, they destroy m- maleness and femaleness. They destroy manhood and womanhood. And we'll see that coming up in Judges. We'll see how you have the, distor- the, the, the I hate to use this word, uh, the victimization the sacrifice of Jephthah's daughter. Uh, when Jephthah had a way out, biblically, from his vow, uh, you also see uh, Samson as the womanizer. You see the concubine of the Levite who is uh, just thrown out to this mass of, of sexual perverts to ravage her until she dies. And then the Levite wants to get self-righteously upset and he cuts her body up into 12 parts and, pat- and sends them out to the 12 tribes to get them uh, all riled up and emotional to come back and it creates a civil war uh, in Israel. So paganism is, is destructive and it, it denies that these boundaries truly exist. So when we look at Genesis 1, And I just pulled all these verses out of Genesis chapter 1. You see that God is the one who is making, in in some cases creating out of nothing, and he is defining everything, and as he defines them, he sets the boundaries. Then God said in verse 3, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good, and God did what? He divided the light from the darkness. He sets a boundary there, that light and darkness. If you've ever been to one of these great caverns that we have in our country, gone down into Carlsbad Caverns or Mammoth Caverns, or in Texas you've got Longhorn Caverns out by Marble Falls, and usually when they take you down, uh, where you're down pretty far, they'll have some large open room and they'll have everybody stand still, turn off all their flashlights, and they'll cut the lights out. And it is darker than pitch dark. You can't see your hand in front of your face. You have no idea what anything is, and you start seeing things. It's really weird what the uh, nerves and the eyes will do, but there's no light whatsoever. That's what it was like before God created light. And then usually the park ranger will strike a match. And just that one match in, in a room where there may be 40 or 50 people, and this room may be 50, 75 feet across, and the ceiling may be uh, 50 or 100 feet high, and that one little match, and you see everything. It's amazing how just that one flame permeates the darkness. There's a clear division between light and darkness. When there's light, it penetrates the darkness, and you can see everything. But when the light's out, it's black. So you get this, have this distinction. God calls the light day in the darkness. He calls night. The next day, he's going to create a firmament in the midst of the waters and let it divide the waters from the waters. So there's a division there. There's a barrier that is set set up dividing land from from sea. And he names things. So he's defining everything and giving giving it a name. Then when you get down to verse 12, or verse 11, I left verse 11 out, skipped it. 
Then God said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb that yields seed, and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind. Not according to some other kind, but according to the scripture that each of these, and it's probably more than a species, kind is a broad word. It's broader than what we would identify as a species in modern taxonomy. It, it may be a genus or family. I'm not sure. There's an excellent book that deals with a lot of these different ideas uh, called The um, the Arc of Feas- a Feasibility Study. ICR publishes it, and it was written by a scientist by the name of John Woodmerappi. Um, excellent book, The Arc of Feasibility Study. And he's, he's really talking about, well, when God says to take two of every kind into the ark, how many is that? If it's species, it's quite large, but if it's whatever is above species, maybe family, uh, it's not quite so large. And when Whitcomb and Morris wrote the Genesis Flood, they were saying there were probably 24,000 different uh, animals on the ark. And Woodmerappi takes a slightly more conservative view and thinks it's no more than about 18,000 that are taken on the ark, uh, which is uh, very very uh, doable in light of the size of the ark. So in verse 12, which I have up on the screen, the earth brought forth grass, the herb that yields seed according to its kind, and the tree that yields fruit whose seed is in itself according to its kind. Apple trees don't put out oranges. Orange trees aren't putting out apricots or cherries. It's always according to its kind. God establishes these barriers, and they're not artificial, and they're not just some sort of mental or social construct. They stay the same. But if you come at this from an evolutionary Darwinistic perspective, you, even though nobody has ever seen it, it's never been demonstrable in the lab, nobody's ever produced it, you've never seen an apple tree produce anything other than an apple. You've never seen an oak tree produce anything different except an acorn and, a, and another oak tree. You just don't see it. It's never happened. Uh, 121, so God created great sea creatures and every living thing that moves with which the waters abounded according to their kind. Whales are not giving birth to dolphins or sharks or any intermediate species. Nobody's ever discovered an intermediate species. They all produce after their, after their kind. Uh, verse 24, then God said, let the earth bring forth the living creature according to its kind and creeping thing uh, and beast of the earth, each according to its kind, and it was so. So this establishes these barriers. God is creating barriers and different spheres of, of life. Verse 25, and God made the beast of the earth according to its kind and uh, cattle according to its kind and everything that creeps uh, on the earth according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. So God establishes these boundaries, these divisions, and all of these categories, and they are not m- movable. They are absolute categories. And that's what we'll see when God creates man and woman. So we're just going to look at what does the Bible say about man, manhood, and womanhood. In Genesis one twenty six, we read, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, 
and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So all those categories of, uh, of animals created earlier in the day or on the day before man is placed over them. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Then God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So what we see here is, first of all, the plan. It's anthropomorphized. That means it's personalized like like we would do it. God, of course, had this in mind from eternity past. He's not just having a little holy huddle in the Trinity just right then going, "Mm, I guess we'll make the human beings now. But this is representing his decision-making process. Let us, all three members of the Trinity are involved in our image. This word image is the word at the bottom of this screen, selim. Basically, that's what it means as image. It can refer to a physical representation, like an idol. They're called images, same word. It can refer also to a... um, It can refer to a shadow image, and that's what is seen in... uh, Psalm, let me see if I put that in here. No, let me back it up. Psalm 39.6. Certainly man walks about like a mere shadow. I checked about 10 translations. They all translated it as shadow. And the context of Psalm 39.6 suggests that. It's not a physical image. It is a shadow image. And so that's what we have here. It's not a physical image. God isn't creating man uh, physically looking like God, we're not Mormons. Uh, God created man in his own image, and he, represent, he is a representation in a finite package of God. He has uh, mentality, he can think. He has volition, he can choose. Uh, he has uh, self-consciousness or God-consciousness. And all of these make up his soul. So God created man in his own image, but then it says he created him male and female, he created them. So first it says in the image of God, he created him. Now it's real precise here. Most people would miss this. He creates Adam first, then he creates the woman. Both are equally in the image of God. So that makes men and women equal representatives of God. That's what an image would do. This language really comes out of uh, what is called a suzerain vassal treaty, a typical treaty form in the ancient world at that time uh, between a a conqueror, a major emperor, ruler of a large kingdom, and a vassal state or client nation. And he would enter into a contract, and he would identify the king, the subordinate king of this client nation, as his image or likeness. He represents him. So that's the idea. So this in is used five times in the scripture uh, 
uh, referring to man as created in the image of God, and this describes his function and his purpose. Okay? Broad overview. Male and female are both created to represent God and to rule over the beasts of the sea. So when we look at that verse 28, we have five different commands. They're to be fruitful and multiply. Two different commands, two different verbs. They're related to each other. A lot of people think, well, Eve could not get, uh, couldn't get pregnant before the, before the fall. Well, she didn't get pregnant before the fall. That doesn't mean she couldn't get pregnant before the fall. Because God tells them from the start, from minute one, be fruitful and multiply. Now, if they can't do that, how can we say that they could do any of the other things that are stated here? They're to be, fill the earth, they're to subdue the earth, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. If they can't do the first two commands, that makes nonsense out of the rest of the commands. I believe that God in his, either A, God in his sovereignty restrained or prevented Eve from getting pregnant before the fall, before the test could take place, or it happened so rapidly after their creation, uh, which I think is, is the most likely answer, uh, they fell pretty quickly after, after their creation that there, would, there wasn't time. But it was a very, it has to be taken as a very real possibility, otherwise it makes nonsense out of this command. Um, so man is created, and he's created male and female. So the first word for, for image is selim, and the second word is this word, demut, which has the idea of just a representation, a likeness, something similar. And it should be noticed that noted that in the Hebrew you have a preposition that's, that their preposition, several of their prepositions are nothing more than a, a letter. So you have b, and you have k, and you have l, and those are your prepositions. They're stuck on as a prefix to the word, and b has the idea of in or with or by means of. But it also has another sense. And in the uh, lexicons, they are fans of using Latin terms. They call it the ba-essentiae. And this is basically the bait of essence. As the image of God, not in the image of God. Man is not in the image of God. Mankind is the image of God. We are the representative of God. We are created to represent God to the, his creation and to rule over his creation. What happened in the fall is that they lost that, that role, that dominion. And who took it over? Satan did. That's why when he's tempting Christ in the third temptation and says, I'll offer you, I'm offering you all the kingdoms of the world if you'll fall down and worship me, Jesus doesn't say, well, they're not yours to give. Because they are. And he doesn't lose his dominion until the king of kings and lord of lords uh, shows up at Jerusalem and destroys his armies and his forces and casts uh, Satan into the bottomless pit and the antichrist and false prophet into the lake of fire. So 
that's the significance of this. We have male and female. So man is created to fulfill the role as God's vicegerent. That is not a vice regent. That's a, like a vice president, somebody who takes your place if the main guy dies. A vicegerent is a personal representative. In some ways, not too different from an ambassador. It is someone who represents the ruler over creation. So man's role, the role of humanity as male and female is to is linked to what he is to do. He is to rule over the animal uh, creation. He's to have dominion. He's to subdue the animal creation. Now, all pagan thought, which is inherently pantheistic, just makes man a part of nature. I, I remember when I was a kid, and you, you, little things would kind of leak out, and one day you're studying science in your elementary school class, and they say, well, m- human beings are animals just like everyone else. Not if you're a Bible-believing Christian. My mother was always good at asking me questions about what did you learn at school today and then correcting the human viewpoint that came out. Uh, We are not animals. We share certain similarities to animals, but we are in the image and likeness of God that distinguishes us from the animal kingdom. So we can't ever validate that concept, and we can't let our kids validate that concept. We do not treat each other as animals. We are to treat each other as those who are in the image and likeness of God. Human beings are given the authority to to slaughter animals and to eat animal flesh in the Noahic Covenant. But they're also told that if a human being kills another human being because they have treated another human being who's in the image of God with such disrespect as to steal their life from them, they are to sacrifice their own life. They are to be executed for that. So we don't treat human beings in any way like like an animal. There is something very different about human beings and that both man and woman together are to represent God originally in the Garden of Eden. Now, that's really important because we're dealing with, we haven't gotten to the fall yet. So the earth is perfect. Everything is absolute perfection. There's no sin. There's no evil. There's no decay. There's no corruption. There's no kind of death or deterioration. The second law of thermodynamics hasn't gone into effect yet. It is a very different earth. So we're created in the image of God. Now let me tell you a couple of things about that that's important. That image is not destroyed with sin, but it's corrupted. But the process of salvation and sanctification is to renew that image. And this is what we find in the New Testament about this image of God. Romans 8.29 says, For whom he foreknew, he also pre destined or appointed ahead of time to become conformed to the image of his son. Now, what's the image of his son? That's Christ. That he may be the firstborn or the preeminent ones among many brethren. 1 Corinthians 15, 49 says, just as we have been born the image of the earthy, because we're born as sinners, 
We shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Well, what's the heavenly? The heavenly is God. So we have to have that image in us has got to be renewed. It's never completely renewed, but that renewal process is part of our spiritual growth. Second Corinthians 3.18, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image, that is the image of God, from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. Colossians 3.10 says, And have put on the new self, who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. So that's the process. Men and women, that's our prime directive in terms of our spiritual life is to uh, grow in the uh, knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when God made humanity, male and female, both were equally in the image and likeness of God. But each had a different role. So male, maleness had a particular function and role, and femaleness had a particular function and role. And so like any good design engineer, the male and the female were designed biologically in terms of their function and in terms of their role. The woman is created secondarily by means of the man. Now, why is that? That doesn't make her less human. It makes her more human because she is made out of the man. So they share the same genome, as it were. They are equally human. If he had created man and then created woman, they would be different. They wouldn't be unified because he creates the man first and then takes the, wom- takes the rib out and creates the woman from the rib, that gives the human race an organic unity, a genetic unity, so that one who is born of a woman can die for all of humanity because we are genetically united. If the woman was not, it was, they would not be, have that genetic unity. So the woman is created. God says it's not good that a man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him, an aitzer. And this is defined as a helper, an assistant, and in some cases it takes on the idea of a servant. But in our world, being a servant is something that is, oh, that, that's low, that's not important, that's insignificant, that, that, that's, that's not acceptable. But we have this word helper, and it ele- it's elevated in Scripture. There's other words for help or assistant or servant, but this word is special. In Genesis 2.20, it's used a second time, and where, God, where Adam is given the task of naming the animals, and he realizes for every, every bull, there's a cow. For every ewe, there's a ram. Uh, for every male, there's a female, and he notices that he's all by himself. There's no helper comparable to him that is in accord with him. And that's twice emphasizing the sense of helper. So since this is perfect environment, this is absolute perfection, 
And the woman's role is to be a helper. It, it, and I use this when I was teaching marriage a couple of times in the, the analogy of the dance. Because in dancing, classic dancing, not everybody doing their own postmodern shift, okay? Where everybody gets out and does their own thing. That's just pure selfism. Look at me, look at me. It's all on their own. It's just pure self, uh, self-absorption coming out of postmodernism. It's about the individual, not about something that's fluid. We all love watching ice dancing. We love watching a good team dance. But the man is the one who leads and the woman follows. And that doesn't mean that the woman is less talented than the man. In many cases, she may be ten times more talented than the man. But it, by having order and structure, that creates the environment through which some, something of absolute beautiful artistry can take place. So they come together to work together toward a common goal, and he's the leader in the home and the direct, and she is there to aid and help in many ways. But what's interesting is the Bible wants us to understand that being a helper is an elevated position. Jesus talks about being a servant and said the one who's a true leader is a servant of all. There's nothing low about being a servant whatsoever. That's just your human viewpoint arrogance cropping up. Deuteronomy 33, 29, the word is used of God, the shield of your help. Now, I've talked about two verses. I've got three on this slide, three on the next slide. That's six. That's eight of the 11 usage of of this word, Eitzer. And all but two of them refer to God. Now, that's a very elevated position. you, You can't say that, well, God is just some, you know, somebody you can walk all over. He's just some doormat. You can't get away with that because this concept of being a helper is a God thing. That's related to what God does. Uh, Psalm 70, verse 5, David prays, You are my help and my deliverer. You're my Aetzer, my deliver and my deliverer. Hosea 13, 9, O Israel, you are destroyed, but your Aetzer is for me. Psalm 121, 2, my help, my Aetzer comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Psalm 124, 8, our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. Notice how it's tied to him as creator. You do away with the creator-creature distinction, you screw up everything because you can't understand the role of a woman in God's creation as an aidser if, God, if you don't have a creator. Psalm 146, 5, happy is he who has the God of Jacob for his help, his aidser, whose hope is in the Lord his God. So what do we see in terms of the current argument? First of all, men and women are equal and interchangeable. Modern man defines equality as being totally interchangeable. I always want to say, does that work on a football team? Can you just go in there and say, ah, I think we're going to take the guy who's playing quarterback and the guy who is uh, up there as, as the uh, offensive guard, we're just going to have them switch positions today. Is that going to work? See, they're equal, but they're not interchangeable. Sometimes we look at people who are leading our country, and we wish they were interchangeable with a few other people. But they're in a particular role. 
Uh, football team, basketball team, any kind of sports team, these roles are distinct, but it doesn't mean one is a better person than the other. In fact, the one, the quarterback may be a horrible human being, and others on the team may be wonderful people of integrity. But that that doesn't change the fact that he's still the leader of the team because he's the quarterback. That's the role. So if they're interchangeable, then what that really is saying is they're the same. There's no barriers. There's no real distinctions that exist. They're totally, they're totally interchangeable. Uh, to assert that males and females are equal in the sense of interchangeability denies that which is of their essence. Okay? This is an important term. To assert that males and females are equal destroys their essential nature. It minimizes it or totally denies it. And therefore, it destroys their significance. In attempting to argue for greater significance of women, what has transgenderism done to women's rights, women's equality? It's destroyed it. Because that's what paganism does. Just look around when they're worshiping the earth and they're going to come up with any number of ideas that we're going to improve our energy. So we're going to have big windmills. Doesn't that sound like a great idea? Until you start looking at what is part of mining all of the different metals that go into making that windmill blade and how large that is and the fact that it's only good for about 20 years and then you have to replace it, but where are you going to put it? You can't just take it down, stuff it in the trash can. And that's going to be breaking down eventually over time and causing uh, pollution leaching out from those metals into the, into the soil. And what about the fact that any metal that's spinning on metal needs what? Lubrication. It needs oil. Where are you going to get the oil if we're going to be oil-free? You can't be oil-free. It's got to run on that. And, and the amount of oil that is necessary in order to um, lubricate enough wind, windmill blades to power just a city of 500,000 is, is an incredible amount of oil. So you have to have oil, and you're trying to get away from using um, fossil fuels. Well, you're not really doing it. See, whenever pagans try to solve a problem, they create more problems. You have all kinds of different samples. Uh, we're going to go electric. You need to look up on the Internet what goes into building those batteries in the electric cars. All of the mining, all of the destruction of the Earth's surface, talking like an ecologist. All, but they don't see that. And then uh, what happens when that battery runs down and all of those different uh, metals that are in the batteries can't be used again and they're going to leach into the soil. You can't really destroy the batteries. It's just a mammoth problem. So what happens is when, when pagans try to solve a problem, they destroy the significance of what they're claiming they're trying to elevate. By changing something's essence, you change what it is and in this case, it destroys its value. I'm going to give you an illustration here that comes out of an article that was written by C.S. Lewis that's in his book, God in the Dock. 
He wrote an essay in there back in the mid-50s called Priestesses in the Church. Now, remember, he's an Anglican, and what he is responding to is the idea being floated in the Anglican Church that they can now ordain women to be uh, equal with men in performing the rituals of the Anglican Church. And so he begins that article with uh, an excerpt from the novel Pride and Prejudice in chapter 11. The context of a conversation is the discussion of an upcoming ball. Let me remind you of a definition of a ball. What makes a ball a ball? A ball, defined by the Oxford English Dictionary, is a formal social gathering for dancing. Keep that definition in mind. Thus, by definition, the essence of a ball is dancing. So, The quote he takes from Pride and Prejudice is from Carolyn Bingley, and she says, I should like balls infinitely better if they were carried on in a different manner. She doesn't like the dancing. It would surely be more rational if conversation instead of dancing made the order of the day. What she's saying is, let's just quit dancing and and have good conversation. Well, her brother just destroys her argument right away, and he says... It would be more rational or much more rational, I dare say, but it would not be near so much like a ball. It wouldn't be a ball anymore. If there's no dancing, it's not a ball. You've changed the essence of what it is, and so it's no longer the thing that it was. So Lewis is using that snippet of the conversation to point out an obvious problem, that is uh, to carry on in any different manner other than dancing, would change it. It wouldn't be a ball anymore. So basically, when you change the essence of something, then it changes the nature of the thing, and it's no longer what it was. So this illustration came to his mind when he heard that the Church of England was considering admitting women to the priesthood, and so he's expressing this in relation to the fact that if you admit women to the priesthood of the Christian church, remember he's thinking like an Anglican, then it's no longer a, what the Bible says a church is. Because the Bible says that those who are to administer the sacraments are male. And if you include women, it's no longer what the Bible says the church is. You've changed the essence of the thing. If we change that which is part of the very essence of what makes something what it is, then that change makes it something different. So I want you to think in your head, imagine a chair. If you're short on imagination because it's late, you can just look up here at a chair. But there's all kinds of different chairs. I look back in the fellowship hall and there's wooden dining room chairs. We also have um, have uh, deck chairs, and you have lawn chairs, you have reclining chairs, you have Queen Anne chairs, you have club chairs, but they're all chairs, and we know what a chair looks like. But if you take what your mental image and you just take it like it's a piece of taffy and you stretch it out so now that it's about uh, 8 or 10 feet long, what is it? It's a sofa. It's not a chair anymore. 
So if you change the essence of something, you're changing what it is. And that becomes a problem when you're talking about manhood and womanhood. Now, this is just too delicious to pass up. And so I want to make an application of this because I, I don't want to miss this opportunity. In 1926, J. Gresham Machen, who's a great defender of Protestant orthodoxy, fighting against liberalism, wrote a masterful work called Christianity and Liberalism, which came out, I think I said this, in 1926, where he demonstrates that liberal theology cannot be another form of Christianity. See, that's the claim. You go to the liberal mainstream churches in Houston, and they will all say they are Christian. Machen would say, you're not Christian at all, because when you change the nature of God, man, Christ, and salvation into what you've changed it to, that's not historic or biblical Christianity. So you can't use the name Christian because you've changed the essence of what it is. And that's what liberalism in theology has done is it redefines the term so it really isn't Christianity anymore. But people don't understand that. So when we're talking about these categories of male and female today and we take away the barriers, we're changing the essence and we're destroying maleness and femaleness. We've done it in politics. In liberal political theory, it's what's the term that they use? What's the popular term, which is really the good historic term? What do we call it? Progressivism. What are they progressing towards? Progressivism goes out, comes out of an idea, ideas that were popular in the early 19th century uh, from Hegel. Later, Marx picks up on some of Hegel's ideas, and that is that through synthesis, antithesis, and I mean uh, thesis, antithesis, and synthesis, we are gradually progressing towards a utopic state, perfect state without God. Okay, so that's what we're progressing to. We're going to bring in the the secularized. Uh, kingdom. Now, progressivism is not anything at all like what is found in the Constitution and what defines what America is. So in the same way that liberal Protestant churches cannot claim to be Christian in any way, shape, or form because they change the essence of Christianity, progressive Politics can't claim to be constitutional or American because they've changed the essence of the, the government and the goal of government. Liberal theology, just like liberal political theory, can't be considered, liberal, political, liberal Christi Christianity can't be considered to be a form of Christianity, and liberal progressivism can't be considered constitutional or American. In both, they had changed the essence of either theology, Christian theology or the essence of the Constitution and America, what America stands for, and they made it something else. Uh, their attempt is to destroy it as much as they want to wrap themselves up in the American flag. Every time they do that, they are desecrating it, and frankly, they ought to be immolated on the spot. Men and women, the two big questions that we need to address... What's coming up? Uh, let me let me close out with this. We're getting late. So to summarize what 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 C.S. Lewis is saying: a ball is by definition having the essence of dancing, 
To change the essence from dancing to conversation is to render it no longer a ball. And by analogy, what that is saying is the essence of the Anglican Church, biblically speaking, is to be led by a male priest, and to change to a priestess renders it something other than the biblical church. We can't change the essence of things. So the two key questions that we'll start with next time, are men and women equal? Second question, are men and women interchangeable? What does the Bible say about that? So we'll come back and start there next time. But we've laid the foundation, and we have to go forward. So we have to learn to think about these things from a biblical framework. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to uh, look at the Scriptures, look at what you have revealed to us, look at what you are telling us. As Psalm 100, verse 3 says, we know that you are God and that you have made us and we have not made ourselves. We are your people and the sheep of your pasture. And what is happening around us is the world is trying to make us after their image and not realize we are after your image. Help us to understand these things and working out the significance of its application as we go forward. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.